Hey, if you could ask for one thing from God, what would it be? And I don't, I don't mean to suggest that God is a genie or anything, but if, if he came to you and he said, what do you want me to do for you, how would you respond? There are certainly lots of things that we could ask for. We could ask for world peace. Uh, we could do with a little bit of that around here. You might ask for something a little more personal, some harmony in your home, or maybe it's a wayward child who's left the faith or something like that. Um, hey, with one of y'all with an able body, can y'all bring me a, uh, can you bring me that tablet? Y'all hear that ringing? I do. So it's going to bother me, so let me fix it. You could ask for lots of stuff. You could ask for peace on earth, harmony in your home, God to restore a wayward child. Or maybe you get a little bit more uh, base in your requests. And you say, Lord, give me untold riches. Give me a place of prestige in my company. Give me some respect from the people in my world. Or maybe you get to the place where James and John were, where they say, make me great. Make me great. I know it doesn't reflect very well on them. I mean, they are in Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and yet when it comes time for Jesus to ask them, what do you want me to do for you? They say, hey, grant it to us that we might sit at your right and left hand in your kingdom in glory. That's pretty strange. And so this morning, I, I want to sort of think through this request and Jesus' response and how he teaches us to think about power and honor. And in doing so, I hope you see this point. This is really the only point. My, my sermon today is not pointless, but it does have one point, which is not my normal way of doing things. But here's the main point. Greatness in the kingdom doesn't come to the famous, the powerful, the strong, the intelligent, the beautiful, the wealthy. Insert your own adjective. But to those who follow Jesus into a life of selfless service and radical sacrifice. Greatness in the kingdom comes to those who follow Jesus into a life of selfless service and radical sacrifice. And I have to believe that because you and I are here today, that this is the point Jesus wants us to work into our lives. And so whatever the one thing that you would have asked from Jesus is, I think he's got a better thing for us to seek today. So let's work our way through this passage, and I'll try to prove this point to you and give you some stuff to do with it. Now, over the past several weeks, we've been working our way through this section of Mark's gospel, Mark 9 and 10, which really focuses on Jesus' final preparations of his disciples. He's headed towards Jerusalem, where he knows he's going to be betrayed and killed, and so he's trying to recalibrate his disciples to the values of the kingdom that are going to help them live out the life he's calling them to live. So a couple weeks ago, we saw this value, this countercultural kingdom value that shows up in the way we treat the weak and the vulnerable. So Jesus teaches some pretty radical statements about divorce and about welcoming children. Then last week we saw that Jesus teaches his followers to think about money differently than the world does, that we're supposed to treasure Jesus above all else, especially money. And so if you missed those two sermons, you ought to go back and listen to them because this is really kind of part three of these countercultural kingdom values. The first one had to deal with the way we treat the insignificant. 
Last week, the way we think about money, and this week, the way we think about power and honor. And so Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, and he's surrounded by a crowd of people. Uh, They're all pilgrims making their way for the same special religious festival called Passover. And as these people are walking, Mark tells us they're feeling the tension in the air, that there's a heaviness to this occasion. Uh, You might want to look at it again. It says they were going on the road up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed him were fearful. And you got to think that they knew a little bit about the past three years of Jesus' life. They knew the deep conflict that he'd had with the religious authorities, and maybe even they had started to understand some of what he had to say about his impending death. He told the disciples back in Mark chapter 8 that he was going to be betrayed and was going to be killed, and on the third day he was going to rise again. And Peter said to him, No way, Lord, will we ever let that happen to you. And Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you're focusing on man's interests, not on God's. And so Jesus goes and tries to help them understand again until we get to Mark chapter 9, where Jesus tells his disciples the second time that he's going to be killed, and after three days he's going to rise again. But again, the disciples are confused, and so they begin debating among themselves about who's the greatest. And then here in this third prediction of his impending death, we see maybe that they are starting to get it, or maybe not, because their response is a little unsettling. I mean, Jesus has told them in this third prediction some new information. This is the first time Jesus has told them that he's going to be killed in Jerusalem, and it's the first time he's brought the Gentiles in. Up to this point, it's been some unspecified people who are going to kill him, the chief priests and the scribes, and now he says that he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles who are going to actually carry out the execution. And yet, even with the more detailed description of his impending death, the disciples' confusion comes up to the surface you got to wonder what's going on. And I think that James and John saw Peter's rebuke in the last passage where Peter said, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus corrects him, and he's like, hey, listen, even the first will be last, and the last will be first. And so maybe James and John see their opportunity to wedge themselves in even closer to Jesus than they'd been before. And so they ask him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's like... A blank check. Like, I don't want to give you the deed. That's what my kids do to me. Hey, Daddy, do you love me? And then, you know, they ask the question that you have to go back on and say, well, I love you, but not like that. Um, and that's what Jesus seems to be doing with James and John. They come to him and say, Lord, we ask, will you do whatever we ask of you? And he asks the question, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, let us sit on your right hand and left hand in your glory. They don't get it at all. That They've heard him talk about Jerusalem, and they're reading between the lines about his coming glory and the kingdom that he's been announcing. And they start to think that, hey, if we're going to make it to Jerusalem, David's city, the royal city, that means Jesus' kingdom must be imminent. The glory that he's been hinting at is about to be here. And so they seize the opportunity. They know that any king has courtiers, men and women who are in his court. They're his trusted advisors and confidants. And so they look for the opportunity to get permission to sit on his right and left hand. I mean, as close to the king as you can get, to be up in all the king's business, to know everything that's going on, to get the respect of the whole kingdom. 
And yet Jesus' response proves that even though the disciples thought they knew what he was doing, they didn't actually know anything at all. I love what he says in verse 38. He says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm to be baptized? Of course, this cup is the cup that he's later going to pray about in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. It's a cup that's mentioned in Psalm 75. A cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It's well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely, all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. It's the cup identified in Jeremiah 25.15 and in Revelation 14.10 as the wrath of God poured out on sinners. See, Jesus knows that what's coming for him, this death he's predicted three times, is not some sad end to the revolutionary life of Jesus. But it is the mission for which he's been sent. What he talks about in verse 45 where he says, For this reason I came, to give my life as a ransom for many. That he knows that his death is going to be suffering under the wrath of God towards human sin. Same thing with his baptism. Baptism is the judgment of God on human sinfulness. Maybe you remember, maybe you were with us way back when, when we were in Mark chapter 1, and John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance, announcing the nearness of God's judgment. And baptism works like this for John, and I think for Jesus, that John announced that God was about to flood the earth with his wrath and judgment. But if people would acknowledge that what God said about them was true and willingly be baptized as an expression of their repentant heart, they would miss out on the judgment, having undergone it through the waters of baptism. And I think that's what Jesus means. That's why he says in Luke twelve fifty, I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it's accomplished. James and John, you have no clue what you're asking me. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Are you able, able to stand under the wrath of God to suffer? And, of course, they don't get it. They say, we are able. They're clueless. They're thinking only in human terms about human kingdoms, human power, and greatness. And Jesus says, you guys are totally confused. Yeah, you're going to drink from the cup that I drink, and you're going to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized, but for me to give you the place of honor in my kingdom isn't my prerogative. It's going to be given to those for whom it's been prepared. So meanwhile, the ten disciples are back behind Jesus somewhere else and hearing James and John's conversation with him and getting more and more angry not that I don't think they're getting angry because James and John are trying to get positions of honor in the kingdom. They all want that. I think what they're angry about is that James and John have somehow found a way to beat them to the punch. They've gotten to Jesus first. They all would have done the same exact thing. They all want to be considered great in the kingdom. And that's why Jesus has to pull them in close and say, Listen up, guys. We've got a mismatch here. You're not thinking clearly about God's kingdom. You're thinking in merely human terms about what it means to be great. And so as I said, I'm straight. 
He says, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Think about it. We've seen some of these Gentile rulers. We know about Herod, who had a, a raucous banquet. And during the whole deal, his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, who he'd married, brought her daughter in to dance for all his drunken friends. And as the party was just kicking up, he wants to show off, hey, look how much authority I have. Look how much power I possess. Ask me whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And what does the girl ask for but the head of John the Baptist? And so he tells his guy, hey, run down to the prison and bring John's head back to me on a silver platter. Those are the kind of Gentile rulers Jesus is thinking about. He's thinking about Caesar and the many Caesars who wish they were like Caesar. He says, you guys would normally think clearly about these men, that they're ungodly and despicable. You pray against them, asking God to set my people free from their rule. And yet when it comes to thinking about power and honor, you want what they've got. There's a mismatch between your values, which you've adopted from the world, and the values that I've taught you, the values that I've lived out, the values that define my kingdom. What does he say? It's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. See, Jesus' approach to greatness is totally at odds with the way the world works. The Gentile rulers accrue for themselves power and make sure everybody knows it. They throw their weight around. And Jesus said, it's the opposite for us. We humble ourselves and serve the people around us. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus did. In verse 45, he gives us the whole conclusion and ground of his entire statement. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He points to himself. He says, James and John, all you guys, the way you're thinking about power and glory does not reflect what I've taught you. It reflects what you've learned from the world. Think about me and the way I've lived, laying down my rights for the good of the people around me. I mean, it could not be a more radical juxtaposition between the countercultural values of Jesus' kingdom and the values that you and I have learned from the world. I mean, James and John are totally self-seeking. What do you want me to do from you, for you? And they think about how they can elevate themselves, look into their own interests. And Jesus says, really, if you want to be great, look at the opposite end of the spectrum. Look at the servants and slaves. Servants and slaves don't operate for their own self-interest, but they do what they're told by their masters. And they work for the interest of the one who lords over them. And that's the attitude Jesus expects to see in his disciples. It's the attitude that he had lived out in front of them for three years. They had seen it day in and day out, Jesus serving the people around him, and that's what he expected to see in them. They missed it completely. Jesus had come to put others first and had done so even to the very end of his life. He says in verse 45 that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. The Greek word for ransom is lutron. It's only found in two places in the Bible, um, both of them are this passage in Mark and in Matthew. And the Lutron is the price that's paid to set free a prisoner of war or to purchase a slave from their captivity. 
It's used throughout the Old Testament to describe what God did for his people, Israel, when they were in slavery in Egypt. That he paid the price to redeem them out of their slavery. And Jesus said he had come to save many people from their sins, to redeem them, to pay the price to set them free. So while James and John are trying to understand the kingdom through worldly lenses, Jesus had been mining the Old Testament his whole entire life had been embedding himself in what God had promised to do through his Messiah. And he'd come to see that he had been called to fulfill the role of the suffering servant that Isaiah identified in Isaiah 42 and 53 and 56. He said in Isaiah 53.10, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He'll see his offspring, he'll prolong his days, And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And James and John had heard all the talk about the kingdom, and they had assumed that Jesus was going to operate the way the human kings of the world did. He said God's plans were totally different than that. His methods were unique. That rather than exerting his power and exercising his authority, he was going to lay down his life. When he got to Jerusalem, he wasn't going to set up a throne with courtiers on either side. He was going to hang on a cross and be surrounded by thieves. And that was the way he was going to establish his kingdom. And that's the way people were going to see him in his glory. Because of that, greatness in the kingdom doesn't come to the famous, the powerful, the intelligent, the wealthy, the strong, but to those who follow Jesus into a life of selfless service and radical sacrifice. I want you to think about that. Think about what you know about God and the way he works in the world. Even think down to the details of your own life. Think about the people who have had the greatest influence over the person you are today. And what defined them? If I were a betting man, I'd bet you it wasn't the authoritarian boss who reminded you that he was in charge. You're just there to do what you were told. I bet it wasn't the exacting parent or teacher who reminded you that you never measured up to their expectations. I bet if you're anything like me, it was the people who were fairly insignificant in the world's eyes. I mean, I've known some wealthy people. I've known really, really wealthy people. And they didn't make much of an impact. Known important people and respected people in my little niche bubble, Southern Baptist world, which is so small. But I was enamored by them as being great. But they're not the people who impacted me the most. The people who impacted me most are people like my friend Dennis Hickey, who for the past two years has met me occasionally for lunch and poured into my life, encouraging me, pointing me to Jesus, assuring me that even when I was weak, he was strong. A retired missionary and hospital chaplain. You don't even know who he is. You couldn't pick him out of a crowd. If you, if you did see him, he's so soft-spoken and unassuming, you'd probably pass over him. Think about my high school English teacher, Melanie Blackerby. One of 35 kids in her class, she could have just gone through the motions, got me prepared for my test, and sent me on to the next grade. But took an opportunity at Baker High School in Mobile, Alabama, in the middle of class, to talk about stuffed animals and how her dad went she was a little kid, told her a story about her stuffed animals and about the unicorn that died so the other stuffed animals wouldn't have to. 
suffering in their place. Who talked to me about John Piper, preacher, that when I was as far away from God as I could be, she assured me that I should check out his sermons. And when God brought me back to himself and I started pursuing my faith again, I thought about Blackerby and what she'd taught me, what she'd said about John Piper. And God built up my faith by listening to his sermons. I just think that's the way it works. The people God uses in his kingdom, the great ones, the people who are worthy of our respect and admiration and we should outdo in showing them honor, aren't the people who are the most powerful or wealthy or intelligent or beautiful. They're the people who have followed Jesus into a life of service and sacrifice, who've willingly laid down their rights for the people around them. And of course that's the way it works. I mean, you just think about the scriptures. Think about the great Bible characters that you know. Think about a man named Abram who was living in his dad's house in Ur of the Chaldees when God came to him and said, Abram, leave your father's house and go to the place I'm going to show you and I'm going to make you great. Abram never owned land. He was always a wandering sojourner moving from place to place. And yet all the nations of the earth are blessed through him because he was obedient and followed God. Think about the conflict between David and Saul. I mean, David was this ruddy kid. That's the way the Bible describes him. Uh, you know, I snot-nosed little brother to all the guys who look powerful and in charge. And of course, he's having to compete with Saul, the tall, dark, and handsome king who fit the bill. I mean, was powerful, was strong, was charismatic. People loved him. They looked up to him. He stood head and shoulders taller than everybody else in the kingdom. I mean, he fit the part. And yet when Samuel was sent to Jesse's house to find the next king of Israel and all the sons were marched out and finally they were like, but there's got to be one more. And they're like, yeah, he is, but he's just a kid and he's out there watching the sheep. Samuel says, bring him in. And he brings him in and God says in Samuel's heart, man judges on the outward appearance, but I see the heart. And I've seen David's heart, that he's just the kind of guy who would stand up before a giant Philistine and say, who dares defy the armies of the living God. Who would lay down armor, lay down confidence in swords and armies and put their hope and trust in me alone? That's the man I can use. That's one who will be great. Think about John the Baptist. A man who, if you saw him, you would have thought he was crazy. Certifiably insane. Unkempt. Imagine he's got a beard down to his knees, probably dreadlocks because he hadn't washed his hair in 35 years. He's wearing a coat of camel's fur. He's eating locusts and wild honey. And he comes out of the wilderness saying that God's about to judge the earth. People get ready. You would have ignored him like most people did. Most people said, oh, he's just a weed blowing in the wind. But God said, this is the one that I've talked about, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus said there's no one greater in the kingdom of God than John the Baptist. And then, of course, there's Jesus himself. The man who for three years lived a perfect life, totally loving the people around him, powerfully affirming the message that God was bringing his kingdom through him, who'd amassed a crowd of followers, people to respect him and love him. On the night he was betrayed, he took off his shirt, wrapped a towel around his waist, and washed his disciples' feet. He's a man who exchanged the glory of heaven 
for the anguish of the cross. Think about what Paul says in Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Listen, this morning, don't miss it. If your one thing is to be great, you won't find it at work or at school or in accomplishments or in wealth or in beauty or fame. You'll find it by following Jesus into a life of selfless service and radical sacrifice. That's why John could say, John, the very John who once asked Jesus to sit at his right hand or his left hand. That's why he could say, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Greatness, brothers and sisters, is not found by those who are strong or powerful or beautiful or wealthy or intelligent as the world assesses all those things, but to those who follow Jesus into a life of selfless service and radical sacrifice. This morning, how will you respond to it? That's the, that's the point today. It's the point Jesus brought you here to think through. Will you reject the self-seeking, self-centered pursuit of honor and glory and greatness? Will you make yourself nothing and serve the people around you? I mean, think about what it would look like for just a second. Think about what it would look like to really adopt this attitude where you work. That instead of always gunning for the next promotion or selfishly trying to make sure you get the credit for everything that you've done, what if you made it your aim to help the people around you look good? You look for opportunities to help them achieve their goals. Do you think people are going to look bad at you, look down on you? No, the person who's great is the person who helps others. What if you, instead of at school... And I'm thinking about y'all over here, because I was one of you at one point. What if instead of at school, you gave up trying to fit in with the cool kids? I never fit in with the cool kids. I know y'all find that very hard to believe. But what if you gave up trying to fit in with the cool kids and the in crowd? What if you just said, you know what? I'm going to be a friend to the people who need a friend. I'm going to always have my eyes open for people who are overlooked and unloved. And I'm going to do my best to be the friend they need. But what if at our houses, our homes, we quit throwing around our weight? Saying, this is my house. I pay the bills around here. I'm in charge. You're going to do what I say. I'm thinking about you men. What if instead of doing that, we look for opportunities to serve our families, putting our wives and children's needs above our own? What if here at church, we, us pastors and deacons and Sunday school teachers and 
community group or connect group leaders and ministry coordinators? What if instead of trying to make sure that our ministry and our goals and our efforts were achieved, what if we just said, hey, what are we but the Lord's servants here for your good? just want to help people know and follow Jesus. And if that means celebrating this thing or that thing, or if that means that what I really hope happens doesn't happen, hey, praise God. What matters is that Jesus gets the glory. I think if we were going to ask for one thing, what do you want me to do for you? We'd have to say something like this. Jesus, more than anything else, I want to learn how to decrease so that you may increase. I want to learn how to let go of all the things that I once held dear. All the things that were gained to me, I just want them all to be lost, Lord, just to know you and just to follow you, just to follow you in a life of selfless service and radical sacrifice. That's the one thing you and I need more than anything. And so today, let's just repent before him of that self-serving attitude prioritizing our needs above the needs of people around us. Let us recommit ourselves to the kind of sacrifice and service that Jesus calls us to as his people, that they would know us by the love we have for each other and the people around us. You need to do that this morning. Because maybe as our band comes and, and prepares to play, maybe you need to come and kneel down here on the front rows. You think we just reserve these rows for Jesus' kids, but maybe after all what God has done is freed up the first row so that you could come and kneel at them and have a cushioned spot for your elbows. It's you before the Lord and before all these people commit to following Him in a life of service. Or maybe this morning you need to think long and hard about what Jesus means when He says He came to give His life as a ransom for many. You know what that says? It's built on a long biblical story. That God created our world and prepared in it a perfect place for people. But the first man and woman rebelled against his authority. In fact, they did a lot what James and John did. They thought about how they could become like God and possess for themselves power and intelligence and wisdom and the right to make their own rules. Are y'all with me? I know you think you've heard this a thousand times. You just wish I'd stop. They rebelled against his authority, seeking for themselves the honor of determining the outcome of their whole life. The Bible calls that rebellion sin. It tells us that because of their first sin, you and I inherited from them a corrupted human nature. Though we were created to live a life of service and worship to God, we go through the motions. We slip into routines and ruts. We turn the good things God places in our life into opportunities to advance ourselves. We're selfish in every way possible. And in that selfishness, we remove ourselves farther and farther from the channel of God's blessing, which only comes in fellowship with Him. But God loves us, and He sent His Son in the likeness of human flesh. He became a man to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserve for our sins. Not because he deserved to die, but he died as a ransom to pay the penalty that our sins deserve. 
to drink every drop of God's wrath so that you and I don't have to. To undergo the baptism of God's judgment so that we can come boldly and confidently to the throne of grace for mercy and grace in a time of need. And after his death, they buried him in a tomb. And on the third day, he rose again, proving his authority over death, hell, and the grave and inviting anybody who trusts in him to enter into a new kind of life where you don't have to worry about the glory and honor that you so desperately craved. But you know that that's yours by right in Christ. So maybe this morning, you need to repent of your sins and ask Christ to save you. Commit yourself to following him as his disciple, learning this new way of life so that you really can live in sacrificial service and radical sacrifice. So whatever you need to do, if you need to come and pray, if you need to come and talk to someone, I'm going to stand down here at the front. If you're one of those who knows you need Christ to save you from your sins and you're ready to follow him, just come and take me by the hand and I'll help you know what to do next. But whatever it is you need to do, whatever commitment you need to make in your heart, Will you do that now? All right, why don't you stand with us? And let's pray.